You know the scene in in cartoons. Um, Jerry is faced with, excuse me, it's probably be Tom. See, I'm getting my cartoon characters mixed up. Tom is faced with the choice. Is he going to drop the anvil on uh, Jerry's head or not? Which, is, again, is cartoonish that a cat could pick up an anvil. Um, and then the, the picture is this. On one shoulder, there's a little cat-like demon. And on the other shoulder, there's a little cat-like angel. And both are whispering in the ear of Tom. Do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. And he has to decide which voice he's going to listen to. Usually he'll thump the angel off and do what he, the bad deed that he wants to do. Um, that's cartoons, but there's a real life version of that. Uh, even we see this scene playing out in the garden, right? As, as the first man, first woman created with the Lord, we have the devil whispering into Eve's ear, did God actually say this is, uh, this is the whispering. These are the voices that we hear. There's a constant stream of words coming at us all the time. They don't come from cartoonish angels and demons on our shoulders. They, but, but since the garden, the, they're, they're, we are continually faced with this choice. Will we obey God's voice or will we listen to and obey another voice? And we all face this question. Will we, will we believe God and what he says or will we believe Satan and his lies? Will we trust God? Will we obey God or will we obey our appetites? This is it. We live in this world of competing voices that are vying for our attention and obedience. You understand that, right? The world, the flesh, the devil, they're all doing everything they can to, to, uh, drown out the voice of God that's speaking to us and guiding us. This is, this is where we have His voice, but everything's in competition with this. We have all of these competing voices. And then, the, and then if you want to boil it down, all of life boils down to this question, whether or not you will listen to the one true living God or something else. That's it. That's it. The question is always, will I listen to and believe and obey what God says or not? And if I don't, what will the consequences be? And if I do, what are the blessings that come with the life of attention to and obedience to what God says? Uh, I mean, just one quick observation, and I mentioned this in prayer, but we have a communicating God. Um, God is not mute. He is, he speaks. He has spoken. He speaks in His Word to us. He's spoken through His Son, the Word made flesh. We aren't left wondering what He wants from us, what His plans are for us, what, what, uh, anything like that. In His kindness, He's a speaking God and He speaks to us. And so, remember that. God's voice is speaking. The question is, will we listen? Will we, Respond. Will we obey it? Well, in First Kings chapter twenty and twenty-two, we are finishing up uh, the book of Kings this morning. We've been in Kings since uh, August, and we'll continue in Second Kings at some point in the new year. Um, but but we're finishing First Kings this morning, and what, what we find this morning is Ahab is is confronted with these competing voices, and we see the consequences of his choice to. To listen to a voice that's other, that one, one that's other than God's. 
And so we'll see this unravel for him today. Ultimately, we see his downfall because of his refusal to hear and to heed the voice of God. Well, the first question that, that we come to in this text and what chapter 20 answers for us is, is the, that sets before us is this. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Whose voice are you going to listen to? We get into chapter 20. We're, we're not surprised to see that the nations are just raging against Israel. And we've seen this throughout biblical history. We see it at, throughout world history, post-scripture. We see it today. The nations raging against Israel. And as chapter 20 opens, the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, along with 32 other king buddies of his, they're raging against Israel. Look at verse 1 with me. Chapter 20, verse 1, 1 Kings. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. The horses and chariots, that when you see that, just think this is the epitome of human strength and might at that time. This is like Abrams tanks and Apache helicopters of their day. This is, this is the full force of, of, of human strength. Militarily speaking. And he went up and he closed in on Samaria and fought against it. So this is the first time in, in Kings that there is a legitimate threat that actually penetrates the border of Israel. It won't be the last time, uh, but it's, this is the first time they close in on Samaria. Verse 2. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are also mine. I guess he can keep the average wives and children, but the best ones he, he wants. But, but the gauntlet is thrown down. How is Ahab going to respond to this threat? Does he fall on his face and seek the Lord for help? Does, does he rehearse God's promises to his people? Does he start singing Psalm 20? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Does he in the, in the Lord's name, in the name of Yahweh, defy this pagan king? No. Verse 4. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my Lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. What? Ben-Hadad is, it's not just that he's taking his possession. He's demanding that, that they violate God's law, intermarrying with pagans. Now, I know that's not a big deal for Ahab in, in essence, but he's demanding that they relinquish God's inheritance, the silver, the gold, the children. And to this abhorrent threat, Ahab basically says to this pagan king, I'm your servant. Do what you want. This is awful. In verse 5, the threat gets harsher and, and even there are more demands. They're actually going to come to the city and take the stuff tomorrow. Tomorrow. So into verse 6, they shall search your house and the house of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. I mean, this is a bully at work. He just wants more. He's basically saying, 
whatever, whatever things Ahab likes, take it. This is like the child, you know, he has one toy, but he sees another. He doesn't care at all about that toy across the room. But as soon as there's another kid playing with that toy, suddenly that's the toy he has to have. Uh, you know, I, we, we adults can be a little bit like this too, but, uh, but this is, this is what he's doing. Whatever, whatever Ahab likes, take it from him. And Ahab caves under Ben-Hadad's threats, compromises God's law, disbelieves God's promises. I just, this is, this is the first thing I'm saying. It's a, in terms of communication, what voice are we going to listen to? The first thing is this. It's a bad idea to let yourself be controlled by the threats of enemies. It's a bad idea. Do, do you, just to bring it to us, do you fear man more than you fear God? Do you care more about what man thinks than what God thinks? Do you ever find yourself compromising God's word out of fear of people? At work, perhaps. At school. With finances. In evangelism. You're afraid what the response will be. With confrontation of people. God, God wants our lives to be directed by His voice, not by the intimidation and threats of people. So at this point, the deadline is fast approaching. This is, I, I picture the show 24 and the clock just counting down here. And, and it's ticking away. Well, Ahab decides he needs help. And so he realizes... Enough is enough. And he takes counsel with the elders. And this is the second, second thing we see about listening to voices. It's a better idea to seek counsel from trusted leaders. So verse 7, he calls all the elders of the land and he informs them about the threats. Up to this point, he's been keeping it to himself. But he informs the leaders about these threats. The elders respond in verse 8, basically. And I'm going to have to paraphrase. We're covering two chapters this morning. Basically says, don't listen to this chump. Uh, that's my words, not not uh, the writers. But uh, don't don't pay any attention to him. Don't don't even think about giving him what he wants. You know you don't you don't concede to this bully. And thankfully, Ahab, for the most part, listens to these better voices. He makes one concession, verse nine, and he shouldn't have done that. But but he he generally listens. And again, just real quick, an application to us: we need the counsel of godly leaders. Why? Because we're weak. We, we, we are weak in the face of opposition like this and threats. We buckle. We need, we need the counsel of other godly people. We need, we need it because we're not sufficient in ourselves. We don't have what we need in ourselves. This is one of the reasons I'm so thankful to God for the plurality of elders that we have here at this church. And so we have a meeting this afternoon. You pray for us, but you can be thankful that, that this is not like I make a decision and we just go for it. No, we, we, we would be in all kinds of a mess right now if, if it was up to me or any one person. We need the counsel of others. And you do in your life. You're not a lone ranger. God has not made you to live in isolation from others. You seek counsel. Seek counsel, young people, from your parents and, and older people. I mean, from, from godly parents and from, from godly men and women, older men and women who've walked this before you. You decisions and, and, and struggling with fears and in all things as you lay plans before the Lord, 
um, just bring these things before people. There ought to be a healthy measure of self-doubt in your life uh, when it comes to these kinds of things. So seek out, listen to godly counsel. But I'm thankful for that, that we enjoy that here in this church. But Ben Haydad, he's behaving like a bully, and, and, he, and yet we're going to find he's going to take none of this business of Ahab standing up to him. He's not going to have this. Verse 10, he basically says, May the gods kill me if I don't come and overrun Samaria. Wipe them out. And Ahab responds, verse 11, Don't count your chickens before they hatch, big boy. Again, my paraphrase. Uh, he says, it's not, the one, it's not the one who wears the armor going into the battle that boasts. It's the one who's wearing it when he comes out of the battle and still living. That's the one who has grounds to boast. But, but, but Ben-Hadad, ben verse 12, he's celebrating like he's already won the battle. He's, he's getting himself liquored up. And then he says to his troops, all right, that's it. Prepare for battle. Let's go. Verse 12. So, so it's, it's, it's dangerous to listen to the threats of enemies. It's better to listen to godly counsel. But this is the, the real thrust of the passage. It's best to listen to God's voice. God's voice and, and true godly counsel is going to be is going to be pointing you to God's voice. But look in verse thirteen. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel. Now Ahab should have immediately sent for a prophet in light of this impending battle, in light of these threats. He should have called for a prophet of God, but he but he didn't. But in God's grace, God just sends him one anyway. He just shows up. And the and the prophet said, Thus says the Lord. Now you know you, you need to see this contrast. It was the threat was thus says Ben Hadad. Thus says the king. And here it's the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord. Now we're gonna see which voice wins at the end of the day. And we get to see this play out. He says, Thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it. Into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the word of God that, that I'm going to give you victory no matter, doesn't matter how insurmountable this, this seems to you and how incredibly overwhelming the odds are stacked against you. I'm going to give you battle. Why? Because I want you to know I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then there's this dialogue between Ahab and the prophet, which is speaking on behalf of God that ensues. Ahab asks questions. God answers his questions. And then verse 15, to Ahab's credit, he listens to the prophet and he, and he obeys. He musters the troops. So verse 16, and they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths and tents. He and the 32 kings who helped him. And then we find in verse 20, Israel strikes first, just as God told uh, Ahab through the prophet that they should. They should they should attack first. Verse 20, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So they decisively win this Battle against overwhelming odds. This great blow that God strikes against the Syrians. And, and what we find at the, the end of the scene is Ben-Hadad's on this long, intense horse ride home. And he has a chance to sober up 
and make his next plans. And it basically leads to this little theological council in Syria. Look in verse 22. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Don't, don't celebrate too long here because it's there, he's coming back. And, and, and so you need to get ready. Verse 23, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. They're doing a little post-battle analysis here. And this is, this is it. This is why we lost. Their, their gods are gods of the hills. They were stronger. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. So their whole battle plan and their battle analysis is basically a theological assessment of the gods of Israel as they see it. They, they, they determined they had bad strategy because Yahweh is a god of the hills in their minds. They, they, they need to fight in the open plain. The implication that it surely Yahweh isn't in control of the plains too. He's just of the hills. And so verse 24, 25, they resort to strategizing and, 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 and human might again. They, they replace men. They replace those 32 drunken kings with seasoned military commanders. And they, they replace all the chariots and horses that were wiped out in the first battle. And so they rebuild their force again. Prepare to fight in the spring, in the open plain. But this is basically what the Syrians are thinking. That, that the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is this limited deity. He's limited. He's confined to certain geographic locations. And he's defined to certain types of warfare. And so, so what God is going to do, he's going to use this puny little Israelite army to come down on this pagan army and show that he is the one true living God of all. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. So springtime comes, the Syrians muster troops and march just like the prophet said they would. And so Israel musters their troops and they go out to fight. End of verse 27. The people of Israel encamped before them, the Syrians, like two little flocks of goats. Just a menacing force, right? The way it's described. Two little flocks of goats. Sweet. Um, But the Syrians filled the country. It's like it's hordes of warriors. This is like... No offense, I wasn't out there for the turkey bowl this year. I was a wimp and stayed where it was warm. Um, but I, this is like the, the best of the Baraka turkey bowlers taking on the University of Alabama in a football game. And not flag, but full contact. They're wearing pads, you're not. And let's just see, see who wins. I mean, this is, this is how overwhelming the odds are here. Two little flocks of goats, and they're filling the countryside. The prophet again comes to Ahab, verse 28. Look with me. Thus says the Lord. This is again, this is the key. This is the phrase that just needs to give. This is what it's all about. Thus says the Lord. God's voice. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore... I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's had enough of their taunts. God, God's not going to give Ahab victory because Ahab's such a great guy. 
He's going to give the victory because he's such a great Lord. This is what he wants to show. Ahab's an idolater. Is, is, idolater. Israel's unfaithful. But, but they will be given victory to, to absolutely eviscerate this Syrian theology. That God is just the God of the hills, not of the valleys. He's not just the God of the hills. He's a God of valleys and plains and islands and planets and stars and galaxies and the universe. I'm going to show you that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You know, we can, we can, I think there's just a little application for us. We can be like Syrians in our functional theology as well. We, we think that God is somehow confined, confined to certain realms of life, but he's, there are other realms that he's either not in control of or he's really just not that concerned about. So yes, God holds the stars and he holds everything in order in the galaxies, but he doesn't, he doesn't care or have anything to do with my dating life. So we want to set up these distinctions. He's the God of the hills. He's not a God of the valley. We can get away from him. We can, there are certain areas of life where what he says doesn't really matter, where he doesn't have authority. And that is a dangerous way to live, um, brothers and sisters. Is there something in your life right now that you believe is outside of God's sight or outside of the realm of his authority, his concern? Some secret sin, some, some habit, um, some hidden struggle. This is this is the, a, a version of what the Syrians believed, and we find it residue of that Syrian theology in our own lives. It's dangerous. Well, it all comes crashing down, though. The the death blow comes despite all of serious strategizing and a sign that's kind of reminiscent of Jericho, the way it all unfolds. The the battle starts in a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand. Syrian foot soldiers are killed in one day. <sighs> then the rest of the soldiers, they flee to the city of Aphek. And, and what we find there is the walls of the city fall on them there. Again, this is the Jericho-like scene. And it kills the 27,000 soldiers who were left. That's just incredible. It's God's, God's doing. God's showing, I'm the Lord of all. I'm the Lord of every place. Once again, what God says comes to pass. Thus says the Lord rings true. You can't go wrong listening to God's voice. Do you understand that? It may not be popular. It may not be easy. It may not be comfortable. It is always right. And it is always good. I don't mean that this is if you just you know, follow 10 steps, you'll have the health, wealth, and happiness and all things. It may be a life of suffering, but there will be joy in the midst of that that you couldn't know by disobeying this. This is only a guarantee of misery and of and a, a life of, of agony. Temporal cotton candy happiness at times, but it's always fleeting. God never lies. He never goes back on his word. Whatever he says will always come to pass. And so, so you bank your life on what God has to say. This is, this, again, thus says the Lord is the, what we need to be listening to. 
So it's best to listen to God's voice. And then finally, it's worst to listen to yourself. It's worst to listen to yourself. You would think Ahab would have learned his lesson by now. What God says matters. But he hasn't. He's like a dog returning to his vomit. It's the same old stuff. He wants, he, 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 he listens to, he heeds the wrong voice again. Here's the scene. So the Syrians have been routed. Ben-Hadad is holed up in this inner room like a closet, as what I think, like a linen closet. This is just, again, this is just picture this. Somewhere in the city, he's being hunted, so he finds this inner room of a, of a house and is just hiding while the Israelites are looking for him. And his servants, they urge the king, Ben-Hadad, to appeal for mercy. And why? Verse 31, because the kings of Israel are merciful kings. So the servants, they put on sackcloth and ropes. These are just outward signs of humiliation, of contrition. And, and they go right to Ahab to make an appeal on behalf of their beloved king. And so this, this may not work, but this is the only chance they have, basically, is what it, the way that the story is unfolding here and the way it's described. So they're hoping to come to Ahab and that there will be some sign of mercy on Ahab's part. And as soon as they come before Ahab, they get what they're looking for. And do you know how Ahab refers to Ben-Hadad as they're coming to him? He calls him his brother. That's the sign of hope, of mercy they're looking for. He says, verse 32, does he still live? He is my brother. Are you kidding me? He, he, he tells his servants to bring his brother to him, verse 33. And so God delivers Ahab's and God's enemy right into his hands. And instead of killing him as an enemy, he welcomes him as a brother. This is like Saul refusing to strike down Agag, who would eventually just plunder the Israelites, lead them into idolatry. It's the same, same song, second verse. Ahab chooses to show quote, mercy to a man who wants to plunder Israel of her women and children and lead them off into pagan worship. And what's going to happen the very next chapter, which is what we looked at last week, he's going to kill his next door neighbor so he can plant a garden in his vineyard. This isn't mercy. This is capitulation. He's not a merciful man. Don't, don't show sympathy and pity for the king here. Ahab... He doesn't seek counsel from the elders. He doesn't, he doesn't seek counsel from the Lord. He doesn't call for a prophet. He just figures this one out on his own. I can take it from here, Lord. This is just like last week. When we're looking in chapter 21. And, and he, he listens to himself. He acts accordingly. And, and then in verses 35 to 43, you have this weird little scene that commences. There's another prophet who enters the story. It's called a son of a prophet. But he's a prophet in... And he asked at the command of the Lord, the, he says this, he has this word from the Lord, and he asked another prophet basically to punch him in the face. <laughs> that is a weird command. I'll give you that. And I think the other prophet thought it was a pretty weird command too, and he says, I'm not going to do it. And in a scene like chapter 13 of 1 Kings, that you have this, you have this disobedient prophet. I know, I know it's a strange story, but he's disobedient to the word of the Lord. He doesn't strike this prophet in the face. 
And he's attacked and eaten and killed by a lion. It's crazy, I know. But, but what is the lesson? What is this here for? What is, what is this little episode? This is all about the word of the Lord. Are we submitting to God's authority in his word? And this is what it's saying. Not even prophets can disobey God's law and get away with it. Don't think that a king can either. So this is what he's saying. So the prophet finds another guy, another prophet, who will be obedient and strike him. And so he uses his black eye as a disguise, basically, to go before Ahab and confront him. So he approaches Ahab in this Nathan-like sort of manner. And he, 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 gives, he tells Ahab this parable. It's about losing a prisoner and the price that... Uh, and the price is either silver ransom or death for what he's done by losing this prisoner. And Ahab pronounces judgment. It's got to be death. He needs to die for this, losing this prisoner. And he doesn't realize he's calling down judgment upon himself. This is the Nathan. You are the man. You're the man. You, you've let a prisoner go. And he wasn't your prisoner to... To let go. He was God's prisoner. God told you to kill him. It's this king who mocked God. Who defied God's authority. And, and blasphemed the Lord. And you let him go. He didn't seek the Lord on this. He listened to your enemy. You listened to yourself. You just consulted your own self. Did what you wanted to do. And again, this is the real tragedy of this. It's that... He, he's okay with enemies from the outside, but he's, but he's at war with God and with friends on the inside. He, he calls enemies brother and he calls brothers enemies. Naboth, Elijah. He doesn't recognize real enemies. It's not, it's not true mercy to kill the innocent and free the guilty. So don't think this is really merciful. You know, we can fail to see real enemies in our lives as well when we stop listening to the voice of God. We stop listening and letting, submitting our lives to this authority. We, we rely on our feelings. We rely on our perceptions we, rather than God's word. We, we treat our true friends as enemies because they say things to us that we don't want to hear even though it's true. And we treat our enemies, those who just tell us what we want to hear, as our friends. And we call them brother or sister. I said this is, this is the authority. This is, and when we, when we stop hearing this. And we start just listening to ourselves. We get into all kinds of danger. And we get all kinds of confusion. About who our real enemies are. And who our real friends are. This is what we see Ahab falling into. So what's his response to this. Overture of grace. And it is that. This prophetic warning to Ahab. Is just God's grace to him. It's another offer to him. What is he, how does he respond? Verse 43, And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. He's just angry and ticked. He's just mad. There's no more important question than this. This is what chapter 20 says. There's no more important question than this. Who will you listen to? What word is guiding your life? All of these competing words, all of these competing voices, what is guiding your life? Is it other people's opinions? Is it yourself? Is it your feelings? 
what you want, your desires, your appetites, your cravings? Is it the culture or is it God? Now, just let me just give one little caveat here, one little disclaimer. I, I don't want you to hear this, that well, I don't care what anybody says. That, no, there is a place for godly counsel. And if you're going to obey God, you're going to obey people too. There's a th- we all have authorities over us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So don't go home and say, well, the pastor said, don't listen to, don't listen to anybody. Don't listen to God. Well, listening to God means you're going to listen to other authorities. And when they're when they're when they're not asking you to do something that's sin, <clears throat> and so, but but listen to God's voice. It is a dangerous thing to pay attention to the wrong voice, and that's what we're going to see in chapter twenty-two. There are consequences, and so second question, chapter twenty-two. What are the consequences of listening to the wrong voice? What are what are the consequences? So God's what we'll see is God's word can be defied, and Ahab's going to be case in point. But God's word will always get the last word. Those are two little subpoints here. First thing, God's word can be defied. Verse 1 of chapter 22, turn over with me, where we, we looked at chapter 21, this little parenthetical scene about Naboth's vineyard and the, and the Ahab, Jezebel, their murderous um, uh, seizing of that uh, vineyard and God's pronouncement of judgment. And we're going to see that pronouncement come to pass in chapter 22. But... Verse 1, for three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. So there's things have been quiet, probably because of the covenant that Ahab made with the king of Syria, which he shouldn't have never, ever made, but he made a covenant. So there's this relative, relative three years of relative quiet. It has it, allowed Ahab to do some things he's been wanting to do around his house. Plant a garden, kill his neighbors, that kind of stuff. You know, just normal, normal Ahab kind of stuff. Over these three quiet years. Verse 2. Jehoshaphat, whose name means Yahweh judges. He is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. After the kingdom is divided, northern Israel, southern Judah. He's the king in the south at this time. He travels to the northern kingdom, Israel, on a state visit. And Jehoshaphat was a generally faithful, righteous king. And pretty good reign as far as kings of Judah and Israel go. And, but, he's, but he's not always the wisest one. And one of his foolish decisions was he arranged for his son to marry Ahab's daughter. And so he basically paints himself into a corner with Ahab, which is never a good idea. And so they have this marriage kind of alliance thing formed between the north and the south. And so while he's with Ahab... They're talking, and Ahab floats this idea of working together to take back some of the land that the Syrians have had captured years before. He says, it's really ours, we should go take it from them. And Ahab makes his case before Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat says, I'm in. Verse 4, into verse 4, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, I'm with you, Ahab. And the only one stipulation, verse 5, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. This is a wise moment of pause here. We better check and see what God thinks before we move on this. And so Ahab gathers together a bunch of his prophets. These These are men who are loyal to Ahab and pretend to be prophets of the Lord. 
And they're basically, though, just a bunch of yes men. They tell Ahab what he wants to hear. And so they tell the kings, verse 6, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Again, exactly what Ahab wants him to say, they say. And so Jehoshaphat, he has the sense to recognize, you know, these probably really aren't truly prophets of the Lord. And they're only telling him what he, what he already wanted to hear. And so he, he basically says, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh here, anywhere, that you can call upon? And Ahab says, verse 8, yeah, yeah, there is. There's yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, of Yahweh, Micaiah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. This is the first thing that we see. God's God's word can be defied in, in a number of ways. The first way is this, by placing it above, or placing our feelings above it. And this is what I mean. Ahab has... Zero intentions of letting God's word direct his life. This is not interested and really interested in what God has to say. He wants to do what he feels like doing and he wants to feel good about doing what he feels like doing. And he doesn't like Micaiah because he comes and and doesn't say anything good to him. He always prophesies prophesies bad concerning him. God's word through Micaiah to Ahab is like this big wet blanket that just keeps getting thrown on all of his plans and wants and desires. What he feels like doing. Yeah, this is a, this is a temptation for us as well, if we're honest. We, we, we want self-affirming words more than we want truth. We, the ultimate sin in our culture today is to make people feel bad about themselves. And we reflect culture more than we would want to admit probably we want preachers to to itch our ears to speak favorably more than we want truth to win the day we want god to be our yes man we want him to agree and we want to justify what we want theologically well god just wants me to be happy and it's okay god God is gracious. He will forgive whatever I do. And who are you to judge? Uh, take the log out of your own eye. So, so and, and this shows up in a lot of ways. I mean, famously, there was an incident with a Christian singer several years ago who wanted to divorce her husband. And, and she sought counsel from some Christian psychologists and counselors and they said, yes, God wants you to be happy. If you're not happy in your marriage, you should get out. Now, that, that played out on a larger stage, but that, is, that story has been told thousands and thousands of thousands of times and outside of the headlines, it, whether it's marriage and divorce, whether it's just any situation in life. That we, we, we want God to just be our yes man. We want affirming, self-affirming words. Say what I want to hear. No, God, when God's word rubs against me the wrong way, then, then I want nothing to do with it. What, what do you do when God's word collides with what you want? What do you do when it makes you feel bad? Do you evade it or do you trust that what God has said is truly best for you, no matter what it feels like at the time? So, so we can defy God's word by 
by elevating our feelings above its authority in our lives. And that is, it's defying God's word is not just about the atheist who, who just tries to verbally assault the, the, the scriptures. It's, it comes in more subtle ways like this. Second, God's word can be defied by trying to coerce it. Verse 9. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. So this regal scene here of the king sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their royal robes and, and ruling over the land. And, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Verse 11, And Zedekiah made for himself horns of iron and said this, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Assyrians until they are destroyed. This is what God has said, this prophet of, of, of Ahab's. Verse 12, And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of of the king, just what Ahab wanted to hear. But did God really say that? That's the question. Verse 13, and the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. He's basically pleading with Micaiah, please, for your own good, just tell Ahab what he wants to hear. Agree with these, with, with the prophets that are on his payroll. Verse 14, but Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Nothing more, nothing less. Here's the deal. Ahab thinks God's word can be manipulated. He thinks he thinks Micaiah doesn't need to be such a prophet of doom. He can speak kind, kinder words, gentler words to him. He believes that. And, and you have the prophets. They're eager to manufacture a word from the Lord to please Ahab. And you have the messenger who, probably with good intentions, thought Micaiah could make adjustments to the word of the Lord. Or even make it up just to save his own skin. But Micaiah says, no. The word of the Lord is free. It's free. It, it is what it is. The, Micaiah's position is, is, I'm in bondage to the word of God. I am not free. It's free. I, I'm a slave to what God speaks. The, 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 and this is the, the word for us. And, and obviously the application for us. The word of God is not under our control. It's not Plato in our hands. We, we just need to say, our posture needs to be, God, whatever you say, whatever you say, I believe and I'll obey. We're in bondage to it. And, and yet the pressure to compromise the word of God, it, just doesn't, it doesn't just come at the gates of Samaria. It comes, I can tell you, it comes in the pastor's study. It comes behind this pulpit. It comes when you're sitting with a friend at Starbucks who's come to you seeking counsel and and you know they really want you to say something to them to affirm them, but you know what God's word says, and are you going to are you going to say what God says, or are you going to say what they want to hear? And it comes in this temptation is all over the place. It's packaged in pretty ways and by Christian authors and Christian musical artists, self affirming but not true. 
It's a temptation to say what people want to hear, to, to, to try to coerce God's word and make it popular. That's always a danger. Paul warned Timothy of this. First Timothy chapter 4, he says, I urge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. You know what all that is basically saying? You better listen to this. And what does he say? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Its word can be defied by trying to coerce it, trying to appeal to broader audiences. Third way God's word can be defied is by making it an irrelevant formality. And boy, is this a danger for us. An irrelevant formality. Micaiah arrives and Ahab asks uh, Micaiah about Operation Ramoth. What do you think, Micaiah? And he first answers like one of Ahab's yes men. This is interesting. Verse 15. He tells Ahab, he asks, what do you think about this? He says, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. He tells Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. But he is speaking with some thick sarcasm here. And Ahab knows it. And you can see by his response, verse 16. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He's basically saying, Just give it to me straight. Just Let's just get this over with. Tell me what God says. I know you're not going to speak anything positive to me, but just just get over with. And why is Micaiah playing this little prophetic game here? Why is he speaking with the sarcasm? Because he knows it doesn't make any difference to Ahab what the real word of the Lord is. He's going to do what he wants to do anyway. One commentator said, it doesn't matter whether Micaiah speaks truth, falsehood, or gobbledygook. It doesn't matter. The, the word of God is an irrelevant formality to Ahab. It's just something to get through and get over with. He, and, and so it's totally irrelevant to him. So Micaiah gives Ahab the true word from the Lord. Verse 17, that Israel will be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. It's not going to be good. And Ahab looks to Jehoshaphat and says, verse 18, Did I not tell you that he would prophesy, that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? <laughs> Told you so. Told you. Then Micaiah gives us this little interesting little picture into what it might look like in the council, in the, in the, uh, Yahweh's council room here. It's, he, he, he portrays Yahweh as holding this kind of Contests, and we don't have time to read it all, but basically is asking the question, who can, who can think of a way to entice Ahab to Ramoth Gilead so he can die there? And there are these suggestions that are thrown out, and then there's the winner. And the winner comes in verse 22, and the idea is this, is that I will put a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. I'll get his prophets to tell him what he wants to hear. And that's the winner, and the Lord guarantees its success. But here's the point. The Lord's word had become a mere formality to Ahab. 
It was functionally irrelevant to him. It, it, it was a box to check. He, he wanted God's word for the official record, but he didn't really want God's word. He didn't really care what it said. I just say, when the word of God becomes an irrelevant formality to us, we should be scared to death. And it can happen, and you can be sitting here, and you're just enduring it to to get out of here and watch football. And you sit through the Sunday school class, you do the stuff. You, but when you're when the word becomes just a formality, when it becomes functionally irrelevant to you. That's a dangerous place to live. It's you're defying God's word by living like that. By passively respecting it, maybe, nodding at it, but not loving it, not living by it, not conforming to it. This is Ahab. Finally, you can defy God's word by trying to shut it up. Verse 24, then Zedekiah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. It's going to come to pass. That's what he's saying. You're going to be hiding for your life. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the city, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water, until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So if you don't like the messenger, if you don't like the message, you're going to try to shut up the messenger. And this is a way we defy God's word. So God's word can be defied, but this is the last thing. God's word gets the last word. It always does. You, you can't outsmart it. As we'll see, verse 29, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. Again, total disregard for what God has spoken. Doesn't care, though. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. What a guy. (laughs) You dress the part of a king, but I'm going to disguise myself. Um, And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots. He trained military commanders. Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. We want him and we want him dead. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, the decoy, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, I'm not Ahab. I don't know how he cried out or what he said, but they, they got it. And when the chariots and the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man, verse 34, drew his bow at random and he struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. Sheep scattered. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it. According to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Merry Christmas. You know, I mean, this, I know this isn't 
but, but what do you see? He tries to outsmart, thus says the Lord. He tries to disguise himself, himself in battle, but God, through this unnamed archer, firing at random, it directs, God directs the arrow of his judgment past the armor right into his flesh and kills him. Takes him out. Everything God said would happen, happened. I mean, just, there's a, a quote from Warren Wearsby I want to read. He says, if Ahab had put a target on Jehoshaphat's back, he would not have made it easier for the enemy to kill him. If Jehoshaphat had died, then his son would have taken the throne and Ahab's daughter would have been the Jezebel of Judah. If Ahab then united the two thrones and blended the Davidic line with his own line, what would have happened to the Davidic covenant and the Messianic line? But God is sovereign in all things and protected Jehoshaphat while at the same time allowing a random arrow to hit an opening in Ahab's armor and kill him. Ahab was disguised and yet was killed while Jehoshaphat was in royal robes and never touched. Ahab had set the king of Syria free when he would have, when he should have destroyed him and now the Syrians killed Ahab. You cannot outsmart God. His word. You can't find small print to get out of his demands. There is no exception to God's rule. You're, you're not exempt. Your sin will find you out, Numbers thirty three twenty three. And do you believe that? So you can't outsmart. You can't throw it off your sin. You can't throw God's word off your sin. Verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So the writer is telling us what he left out of his record of First Kings. And in case you hadn't noticed... The writer gives no attention to Ahab's accomplishments. He basically says, you research it for yourself. If you're interested in palaces and the ivory inlaid furniture and all that stuff, just check out the feature article in Better Homes and Gardens. That's what he's saying. He says, because why? The, the, he admits Ahab's, quote, greatness as a king, but he doesn't include any of it in his account. Why? Because it does not matter. It does not matter. For the writer of Kings, there's only one thing that has any consequence. How does Ahab's life and reign stack up against, to, against God's word? It's all that matters. Ahab couldn't throw God off his scent by his good works. He couldn't tip the scales in his favor by building projects and political savvy. He couldn't cover up the putrid stench of moral and spiritual decay with a little squirt of perfume of some infrastructure improvements. Huh. God, you, can't, you can't throw God off your scent. We, we can't do that either with our works. Jesus said, Matthew 7, you, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, and they won't enter the kingdom. Why? And they'll say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform miracles, mighty works in your name? And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, the, the question is always, uh, how, does, how does our life line up? Are we hearing God's voice, obeying his voice? So verse 40, Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Looking down at verse 51, we'll, we'll get the middle verses at the end. Ahaziah, his, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father 
and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and he worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. It's ugly. You know, the, the last few months of preaching through Kings is basically, we could say, is basically an introduction to next week's Christmas sermon. Um, Kings gives us this dark, ugly backdrop against which the light of Christ and his incarnation just shines so brightly. It's all a setup. Um, we're, we're left wondering at the end of First Kings about God's plan. Is it intact? We're left wondering about um, waiting for God's king. And so I say as first kings comes to an end, the serpent is still afoot. There's still a need for a faithful king who will crush his head. We're still waiting. We're still wanting, scratching, hoping. And there were 7,000 minus one in Israel who were doing that at this time. There was a faithful remnant looking, waiting, yearning, praying. In kings, the world lay in sin and error, pining, just wasting away, languishing, lamenting. But a light is coming. A king is coming. A baby is coming. This is what we'll see next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed Jesus is coming as we look through the lens of first kings. And we, from our perspective, say he, he has come. So, Lord, just in, give us that sense of expectation and eagerness and longing um, that we need to understand the entry of our Messiah into this world in human form that we, we should have. Help us to be shocked and in awe next Lord's Day. And as we think about the incarnation of Christ, as we, just in light of, of what we've studied here in First Kings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.